0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 7th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile. How much latitude does the state of California have to alter or reduce the pension benefits of its public employees? The answer to that thorny legal question implicates hundreds of billions of dollars in state funds and the expectations and retirement security of public workers of all sorts. The California Supreme Court will now ponder the issue after hearing arguments Wednesday in what is one of a barrage of protracted suits that followed cost-cutting pension reforms enacted in 2013, which the governor then described as necessary to keep the public employee retirement system solvent, especially after the 2008 recession. In this case, a firefighter's union sued over the elimination of their ability to purchase service time credits that would, in the future, augment their pensions. The plaintiffs claim the original law that established the Service Time Purchasing Program created a contract between the state and its public employees, a contract that subsequent 2013 reforms impaired, in violation, plaintiffs say, of the California Constitution's Contracts Clause. The plaintiffs point to some employee-favorable state jurisprudence to bolster their claims, in particular, something that's referred to as the California Rule, a series of high court decisions standing for the proposition that public employee pensions may not be reduced unless the state offsets such reductions with comparable benefits but recent appellate rulings have called the California rule into question as something of a peculiar judicial accretion and perhaps a misguided one that overly restricts the state from managing its public employee budget. Just a few minutes, we'll hear from competing Amici in the matter. David Mustagny, partner with Mustagny Holsted in Sacramento, filed an amicus brief in support of the plaintiffs and says, This case is one of several in which plaintiff public employees seek nothing more than fair treatment from the employer they have dutifully served, often for multiple decades and generally for wages far from decadent. He says if the court makes it too easy for the state to eliminate pension benefits, public employees like the teachers, firefighters, and peace officers on whom citizens rely will be left vulnerable to much more dramatic cuts. Then we'll hear from Dan Kolke, a Gibson-Dunn partner in San Francisco and former Court of Appeals Justice. He says the California rule presents no problem here, but furthermore argues that no contractual obligation was created in the first place, that the offer to purchase service time credits was no more than that an offer. Mr. Kolke says California courts have been too quick to infer firm contractual obligations created by statutes such as the one here, and that the legislature, a policy-making body, should generally not be assumed to be creating privately enforceable contract rights that future legislatures are powerless to alter. We'll hear from our guest in just a moment, but first let me remind you about the CLE credit available for your having tuned in to our podcast. One way we are able to continue to bring you free access to these podcasts, keeping tabs on major developments in state and national appellate jurisprudence, is by listeners finding those CLE tests on our site and claiming their hour of state credit. It's really easy to do and much appreciated. For one hour of credit, just go to our website, dailyjournal.com, find this podcast on our splash page, and click the link to a short true-false test. You can complete it in a matter of just a few minutes and then claim your credit. Now it's time for our opening briefs. Our bar member listeners might be interested in one remand issued by the U.S. Supreme Court this week, in which SCOTUS asked the 8th Circuit to reconsider a First Amendment challenge to mandatory state bar dues brought by a North Dakota attorney. The circuit had rejected the claim but will now take another look, specifically directed to review the matter in light of the high court's Janus decision last term, which invalidated mandatory dues required of public employee union members. The Supreme Court heard argument in three matters this week, one with huge ramifications for Social Security disability claimants, in which the court will consider the extent to which those claimants can challenge and scrutinize expert testimony adverse to their claims. Another appeal presents a patent law question, and the third, the most prominent of the week, asks whether the court should overturn the separate sovereign's exception to the Double Jeopardy Clause, which permits state and federal governments to prosecute a defendant for the same conduct. In the Ninth Circuit, a split panel opinion authored by Judge John Owens revived a socialist politician's challenge to a state law restricting political hopefuls' ballot-designated party affiliation to six approved parties. That approved list excludes the socialist party, so the challenger, an assembly candidate in 2014 who was then the chair of the Socialist Party of California, says he was forced to list none as his political preference on the ballot. And in another First Amendment suit that overlaps immigration law, a unanimous panel struck down as overbroad a law making it a felony for someone to encourage or induce an immigrant to come or remain in the United States illegally. The panel comprised Wallace Tashima, Marsha Berzon, and Andrew Hurwitz, who replaced the late Judge Stephen Reinhardt. with Tashima writing that the statute simply swept too broadly, potentially rendering criminally liable and subject to five years in prison, an immigration attorney, say, advising a client facing deportation or an individual speaking to a friend about why, even illegally, it might be in her best interest to remain in the U.S., The government had argued it viewed the law more narrowly than that and only sought prosecution where a defendant tendered tangible aid or assistance, but Judge Toshima referenced a case where more casual encouragement was prosecuted and, moreover, said that in First Amendment challenges, courts should be wary of trusting government pledges to remain within constitutional boundaries that are not firmly drawn. Aside from hearing arguments in Los Angeles this week, the California Supreme Court rendered two decisions, both in death penalty appeals. A unanimous court overturned the capital sentence while affirming the conviction of one defendant who murdered her three children. The reversal was based on an improper juror exclusion. The other death sentence was affirmed, though against the dissent of Justice Liu, who said the sentence violated a law preventing defendants from pleading guilty on charges that could result in execution without the defendant's counsel consenting. The defendant here had been guided by an advisory counsel, but in Justice Liu's view, the law requires more the consent of an attorney in fact representing a criminal defendant. And in its most prominent oral arguments of the week, the high court debated a long-simmering dispute between a firefighter's union and the state over whether the California legislature violated the Constitution by eliminating a particular pension benefit, namely the opportunity for public employees to purchase service credits, referred to as airtime, in order to augment their eventual pensions. The state claims this measure and a number of others included in a 2013 reform bill are necessary to stave off the pension system's financial ruin and moreover that statutorily created pension benefits like this one generally do not create contractual obligations binding future policymakers. The plaintiffs, and a number of supporting Amici, including our first guest, David Mustagney, counter that substantial case law provides the opposite, that courts often infer contractual rights and obligations from statutes like the one here. Mustagney also says the state's financial worries are overstated, that rather the state at least in part simply wishes to divert the retirement benefits of loyal employees to other competing policy goals. He also says the so-called California rule, prescribes without exception that statutory reductions in employee pensions must be accompanied by offsetting benefits. The force of that rule, a doctrine created over decades by dint of several high court rulings, has been questioned by recent court of appeals rulings. Two such cases I'll reference with Mr. Mistogny include challenges by Marin County public employees and the class of Alameda County deputy sheriffs. In the latter case, our guest represents the plaintiffs. As we'll get into, this particular case is one front in an ongoing public pension war of sorts, roiling since those 2013 reforms. Mr. Mustagni says an adverse ruling here by the high court would give the state just too much flexibility to deprive state employees of duly earned pensions and retirement security. Without any further preamble, then let me welcome him into the program. David Mustagni, partner with Mastagny Holstead in Sacramento. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: So the, the case here is a fairly prominent one, widely publicized, a fight between some state employees and the state over California's elimination of a pension-related Benefit yeah, in 2012 as sort of part of some belt tightening measures, seemingly in the wake of the recession there. Let's get into exactly what the benefit was that was eliminated. It, it was created in 2003 by a statute that would allow employees to purchase what's called airtime, essentially uh, extending their service tenure so that in the future their pension would be a bit better. So, say, if you worked 15 years and bought five years of that. Airtime, you would be paid a pension as if you worked twenty years. Tell me a bit more about that—that that law and, and this practice of purchasing uh, airtime.
1: So, airtime's really been a long-standing, longstanding benefit enhancement that's been available to public employees. A lot of my clients are in public safety, and so. It is uh, of particular interest to them. It often comes into play like buying military time and service credit. And as you indicated, what it does is it affects their overall pension benefit because the pension formula is predicated on the multipliers and the years of service. And so by purchasing airtime, the employees then have more years of service that are applied to the multiplier, which then affects the ultimate pension benefit calculation. Uh, And they are required to purchase that airtime and it's calculated by actuaries and something that I don't do. And the idea is that the cost of that benefit would, the, the present value cost that they charge the employee would be equal to what the cost to the pension system is of giving that enhanced benefit.
0: On on that last point, I thought that was an interesting element of this case that in theory, this procedure is sort of cost neutral for both the state and the employee, that the, the employee is paying in the present day value of what they'll get in the future. So essentially giving the money to the state, soon the state invests it and then pays it back to the employee as over the course of their pension. I suppose why then is it such a critical benefit for employees to be fought over if they're essentially, you know, if it's cost neutral for them as well, they're just getting money back that they invested to the state?
1: That's a good question. It is similar to buying an annuity where you're getting a stream of income and in the hierarchy of the pension terms that were impaired by PEPRA. At least in my view, it's not as significant as the issues in the case we're handling, which is the Alameda Deputy Sheriff's Association, which is one of the trailing appeals, and it, it deals with what items of compensation are included in that formula. But it is still an important aspect to a lot of employees because people make decisions on continued employment based upon their economic expectations. And so if you have that benefit available to you and you have it available to you to, to purchase anytime before you retire, someone, and it, it does require an individual analysis on this, but someone might say, hey, I'm right at the tipping point where it makes economic sense for me to go seek outside employment so that I have better opportunities. But this pension enhancement is an inducement for me to stay. And so maybe I can work five more years to save money to buy this enhancement and then I'm able to retire at a pension level that is necessary for the house that I just purchased so that I can afford to pay my mortgage in retirement or any of these other things. And the problem with applying the PEPRA, elimination of the airtime benefit to existing employees is it disrupts those expectations and you you know one of the arguments that the court made was that well the employees had uh, a short window of time that they could purchase the airtime before the elimination took effect but if you stayed on and continued this employment and gave up another opportunity with the expectation that you couldn't afford it right now but if you saved away over the next 5 years you'd be able to purchase the airtime before you retired then eliminating it disrupts that expectation and when you talk about the consideration in all of these pension cases the courts have long held that it's the work and the continued work that creates the contractual obligation to provide the pension and you know it's the predicate of the California rule and all of these things but you know in short you're taking away the opportunity for people to be able to take advantage of that term of the pension system to enhance their benefit before they retire.
0: Okay, that that uh, that PEPRA you're referring to, of course, the the Public Employee Pension Reform Act, the the law passed that, that eliminates the availability of of airtime to be purchased. As you said, it did have a, a grace period as part of it. I think a grace period of about a year, but in any event, the When that law was passed in 2012, after it's passed, the the group of employees here then bring a a contracts clause suit, the core of which asserts that the 2003 law, allowing the employees to to buy airtime, created a, a contractual right between the state and those employees, and that the contracts clause of the state constitution says the state can't pass laws that impair contractual obligations. So... Then the sort of threshold question here is whether, indeed, that original law allowing airtime to be purchased was or created a a contractual right on the part of the employees, a contractual obligation on the part of the state. Why, uh, in your view, was a a contractual obligation created there? And I suppose in particular in reference to the 2011 case cited a lot in the briefing here from the California Supreme Court saying the legislature must evince a very sort of clear intent to create such a right before one is to be inferred by courts?
2: So
1: you uh, you raise a good point. There were two issues that were presented in this case, and the threshold issue of the first issue is whether or not airtime is even vested pension benefit. And then the second question presumes affirmative answer to the first, and, and if it is, then the question is, Does the elimination of it impair uh, a vested right in violation of the state and federal contracts clause? And so the court focused pretty heavily in the questions on the union's lawyers on that first threshold question of whether or not it is a vested right. My answer is is really what I just said a few uh, minutes ago. When somebody accepts public employment, you're accepting it on those terms that are offered, and the pension benefits are deferred compensation. And so the aspects of that pension benefit are part of that deferred compensation that the court has said is vested and protected. Uh, one of the issues that the, the court was asking a lot of questions about were distinguishing with from other types of emoluments of employment, like vacation accruals and uh, health benefit uh, plan terms. And those are pretty significantly different in my view, because those are contemporaneous terms of employment that can change. just like your wages can change. But when you're talking about deferred compensation, and it was clear to me in observing the, uh, the oral arguments that that was a distinction that the court was making. And it's Made for over 50 years in these pension cases is that if you have a promise of something in the future that induces you to work now, that's deferred compensation and you can't be divested of that. You can have changes to it, but the changes have to be neutral or advantageous. And so even if you were an existing employee prior to airtime being offered, that still is a new advantage and a benefit in the pension system that is inducing employees to stay on because they have the possibility of buying that airtime in the future. You know, and it really would come down to a scenario like I described where you're somebody's doing their home finances and they're going like, okay, I can afford to stay in this job if I can bump my pension up enough so that once I retire I can afford to pay for my house or whatever my cost of living is. And so people do pencil that out, and they make long-range plans on how they're going to structure their retirement and and what the the enhancements that they need are, and they make decisions on, well, can I afford to continue working here, or do I need to go somewhere else? And so that really is the gravamen of the argument, is that by making this available and having those expectations out there and inducing people to provide their labor in exchange for it, that... You can't take it away from them. It's different with new employees because they don't have those same expectations. And so that's why you notice there There really was no dispute amongst the parties on the treatment of people that aren't here yet. The, the state or a local agency can say, hey, if you want to come and start working tomorrow, we have a totally different pension benefit that we're offering to you and then they're accepting employment based on those terms and conditions with respect to the pension benefits at the time that they accept employment and begin to work.
0: Yeah that that's a good point you you raised about the line drawn concerns that at least a couple of justices had at at argument and the point that perhaps pensions are and should be treated differently than some of the other benefits that might induce folks to work like a certain paid time off benefits or certain healthcare benefits, work from home type programs, it seemed like some justices were worried that if you say, okay, provision of this benefit, the ability to buy airtime, um, once it's given is sort of fixed, you, you can't really take it back would would uh, create perhaps a worryingly broad rule that sort of any benefit that is conferred then couldn't ever be altered or or taken back even perhaps more minor ones, which might kind of put a a straitjacket around the legislature where it might be trying to figure out interesting and new ways to induce public employment, but then say they don't work the way they had intended, they might want to to change them. So do you think that, I guess, the the benefits here and ones relating to pension are sort of appreciably different than those other kinds of of benefits such that we can address the question just on its own?
1: Yes, I absolutely do. And you're I was in the courtroom. You're absolutely correct. The judges asked a lot of probing questions, or the justices asked a lot of probing questions of both parties with regard to that. I think they were trying to figure out what limiting principles would apply and where you draw those lines. I think they suggested some of the answer in really the questions that they asked the state, but I think that there are, if not bright lines, there are at least clear demarcations of distinction that can be made based upon what is a contemporary benefit or contemporaneous benefit of employment, like your pay rate that gets negotiated from contract to contract and it can change. And so you still would have within the pension system, your last highest year, if that's what you were promised or some for some employees, it's your three highest years average. But there wouldn't be anything that would impair a pension obligation or change that formula if, in a recession, concessions were negotiated and pay rates were reduced. Just like for an employee, you can have a certain level of health care benefits, and in your next labor contract, those benefits could be modified, they could be increased or decreased. That's different than a promise of deferred compensation, and that really was the key word that i think the justices were looking for is that you make the distinction based on what's deferred compensation versus what is your sort of current terms and conditions of employment for right now and in my view the airtime falls within that deferred compensation because you know that's not a current vacation accrual rate a current pay rate a current level of health benefits that is an important piece, uh, you know, albeit lesser than the formula itself and other aspects of the pension system, but nevertheless, an important piece of that promise of deferred compensation and pension. And you have all of the other markings and trappings of what the courts look at in the pension analysis, because you have the expectation and inducing people to stay on with the expectation that they can purchase this benefit if they need it in the future. You know, And to be fair, it's different than other aspects of the pension because it's something that not everybody takes advantage of. But it still is a pension benefit that's that was offered to people and that they continued working with the expectation that it would be available to them.
0: And then getting back to the, the contracts clause question. So the next step, even if it's stipulated that this 2003 law allowing for airtime purchases was a, a vested contractual right, there's some case law, a fairly old case, Kern versus the city of Long Beach that was cited also a lot by the court and in the filings saying that uh, pension rights are not immutable. They can be changed. And it seems like the, the general test there is whether the change is, is reasonable. But you say in your brief that the lower court, the first district court of appeal, sort of misapplied what it meant for a change to be reasonable. What uh, What's your argument in that context?
1: Sure. And let me take a little step back on this because you have in the you know fifty thousand foot picture, you have the state contracts clause and then you have the US contracts clause and there's a body of case law involving both that are essentially the same. There is the so called California rule because some of the federal courts have have deviated a little bit in terms of how they treat prospective pension benefits. But the, the basic principle is that you have to have a substantial impairment of a vested right. And that's that fight is what we've been talking about in, in sort of the first half of the Cal Fire case. If the court comes back and says that they don't find a vested right, then there's a strong possibility that they won't even address the the California rule or the impairment issue. And that would be left to our case or the Marin case. Within that California rule and reasonable or substantial impairment analysis. You know, it starts back in Kern as you mentioned in 1947. That was a, a situation where a City of Long Beach tried to eliminate the pension benefits for police officers right before an officer was about to retire and the court came back and understandably said this is deferred compensation and the court did say, you know, there's a recognition that Pension benefits aren't immutable. You need to have some flexibility so that you can you can change things. If there's a, for instance, a retiree medical aspect of the pension benefit, and the you know the medical plans might change, and so you're not rigidly locked into. You've got to go replicate you know this coverage level that doesn't exist. You just have to give something that's equivalent or on par with what was done before. And the court comes back and says the complete elimination of Uh, this officer's pension is an unlawful impairment, that you accepted this person's employment all the way through so that they could retire at the end and you can't snatch it from them. After Kern comes, Allen won. And in that case, the legislation at issue was making a lot of modifications to the pension formula. And the court came back and they said that in order for the changes to be Sustainable as reasonable, then the modifications have to be consistent with the theory of a pension and its successful operation. And then it went on to say that detrimental changes should be accompanied by comparable new advantages. So then comes Allen II, and it's a similar type of circumstance, but essentially the court in this. These are all Supreme Court cases in interpreting its own precedent, Allen one was in nineteen fifty five, Allen two was in nineteen eighty-three, they clarified that the that the should is a must, essentially. And they said that any modification must be accompanied with comparable new advantages. And so back to, you know, my common sense take on this is you have flexibility. Of course, you can modify the benefits that's been the law for over 50 years. It's just that the modification has to be consistent with the theory of a pension. And what we're talking about in PEPRA and a lot of these pension attacks, it has nothing to do with the, with the operation of the pension system. It has to do with governmental entities wanting to divert revenues that are obligated to fund pensions to, to spend that money on other spending priorities And it's really that simple. It's I'd rather build an arena for a sports team than have to pay the firefighters and the cops what I promised to pay them. It has nothing to do with the theory of the pension or the operations of the pension. You know, put this back in the 50,000 foot framework. The contracts clause came to life in a case called U.S. Trust back, you know, around the time of the Great Depression when The U.S. Supreme Court said that the government can't impair its financial obligations because it would rather spend money on other things. And the Ninth Circuit has been really strong on this, too. The the government, when it is a financial player in a contract that is trying to impair, is held to strict scrutiny. And when you, you know, the argument that we hear is well, the retirement system is. In jeopardy, and so cutting these benefits is necessary to save the retirement system, and so therefore it's consistent with the theory of a pension. But I don't think that that really holds water if you look at it closely. In the Stockton bankruptcy case, there was a challenge to the plan of adjustment that was brought by a lot of the bondholders, and they said that the employees had had their compensation significantly cut, so much so that about half of the police department turned over within a couple of years. But the, uh, the bond market said, no, you need to cut CalPERS as well, and so, therefore, the plan of adjustment in the bankruptcy should be rejected. And Judge Klein came back and said, CalPERS is not a creditor. The obligation is the employer, not the pension system. The pension system sets the contribution rates, the pension system... Um, collects that money from the employer and the employee. They invest it in the stock market and try to meet or beat the discount rate. And then they cut checks to the retirees. But that's all they do. They're not the one that has to pay the money. It's the employer. And the funding of the pension system could be trued up instantly if the employer just made a lump sum or in contribution or increased its contribution rates. And I think the folly of the appellate court's analysis is, you know, the city of Stockton in a bankruptcy is treated the exact same as the city of Beverly Hills with respect to their pension analysis when you have lots of agencies that could probably prefund up to 100% if they wanted to do that. The so-called underfunding levels are also established by actuarial assumptions that can be manipulated and changed. And if you change those things even slightly, you can see massive changes in how underfunded or you've even had situations where they've been overfunded, but it's really the employer at the end of the day. And what has historically been the rule of law in California and the United States is that a governmental entity can't just break its contract simply because it would rather spend money on, on other things.
0: It does seem to be a, a pretty central consideration here, those sort of overarching financial concerns, that one of the you know, main arguments advanced by the state is that it just will not be able to continue to to fund and afford the, the pension system without some alterations, without some cost-cutting measures. Is your argument sort of more that you, you, don't necess- you think that sort of overstates the case, that the, that the state does have the capacity to fund the system, or is it more that... If that argument gets too much weight in this case, that it would make it too easy, in I guess future types of cases where a, a governmental entity could could claim, well, I, you know, we're not unable to pay this because we're having some some financial difficulties, and so we're just going to divert funds that were previously obligated. Even if in that in- instance, perhaps that overstates the case, maybe that it would, it would just become too easy for the government to to use that excuse. Is that your concern?
1: that it's not a proper excuse and it's a multifaceted question. So first, it's not the state in all in all situations. For state employees, yeah, it's their pension obligation because they're the employer. But even like within CalPERS, it's a, a lot of local agencies with different financial conditions. Beverly Hills, I have no idea what they really are, but I mean, they might be only funded at 60%, but they have enough money in reserves that they could just pay that up to 100% if they wanted to and so there's not really a crisis it's you have to look at the financial condition of each entity to determine that another factor that's important to look at is you know what is the cost savings that you're going to receive from the the modification that's trying to be applied as i mentioned before nobody disagrees that modifications can be applied to people that aren't here yet. And that's most of what Pepper did. Pepper change for the new employees is going to result in significant cost savings over time. They're not retired yet, but they're putting more money into the system and they're going to get a much lesser benefit. That's going to have a way bigger impact than airtime, which is going to be budgetary dust at the end of the day in terms of what eliminating that is if it's done properly there's no cost to it right as we said at the beginning of this interview and so if as the governor says that they didn't cost it properly and that there is the cost associated with it and that's possible but that's just a pricing problem where you get a better actuary to figure out what the actual price is and, and charge the appropriate price and so then there should be no cost saving associated with this. But even if there was some or is some, I'm not an actuary and I'm not disputing that, it's it's a minimal amount of money. There's other ways that you can achieve the reductions. I don't dispute that it's a significant problem and it's an issue that has to be dealt with, but there's a lot better ways that are more sensible than trying to impair promised benefits and, and these pension formulas. And, you know, if the California rule Holds, then the, uh, a lot of these pepper changes, at least as applied to the existing employees, are going to end up being invalidated. And I, I think that the state and the and the local entities would have been better served working with their unions to try to find collaborative ways to reduce pension obligations without trying to challenge vested rights.
0: Okay, maybe just one one last one. We've mentioned it a few times that California rule under which and, and created sort of in serial iterations by the California Supreme Court, the expectation is that for a change in pension benefits in this kind of context to be reasonable, then the detrimental change should be offset by some counterbalancing benefit provided. You know, the, the basis for saying that is a hard and fast rule is that one court said it should happen and then a subsequent court said it should means it it must happen. More recent appellate decisions, intermediate appellate decisions, have said, you know, should does not equal must. It, it, that rule shouldn't be read as a requirement. You know, how I guess important do you think is that California rule to be upheld here by the California Supreme Court, and, and do you think it will? And, and what you know, I guess, what's the main argument for why that sort of judge-made doctrine should prevail as a as a requirement in in, in this context?
1: Uh, the short answer to your question is the argument raised by the state, which was when pressed, they said that the future pension benefits could be completely reduced. I think at first the state argued down to a dollar and then and then completely. It started saying that, well, you can reduce them and it just has to be to a reasonable level. And then a, a couple of the justices pressed on what a reasonable pension would be in the state's view. And they showed their cards, which was that well, we can eliminate the future pension benefits all the way down to nothing. And I think that really encapsulates the problem. Really, whether it should or must, what the court is saying is that you should get about the same benefit if there's a modification and it has to be consistent with the theory of the pension. It's not, well, we can just incrementally chip away at the pension benefits because We think it's costing too much money and we want to spend the money on other stuff. And I think the state really showed their hand in those oral arguments that if the California rule is eviscerated, then there is no limiting principle and there is no cut that is too deep in their view to not be reasonable, that they have plenary power to completely – Eliminate somebody's pension benefit at least on a going forward basis. And, you know, with the public safety employees, I'm the most familiar with because they're the majority of our clients. And it's very common that the multipliers on the formula where you're multiplying a percentage by the years of service, particularly in the uh, 37 Acts, that the multipliers accelerate at the end because trap is too strong of a word, but they want to induce employees to stay. And so if you go leave early and you retire early, you're going to get a much lesser multiplier than if you stay and you work your full 30 years. And I just think it's manifestly unfair to say, okay, well, we'll let you work 27 years, 28 years, 29 years, and then we're going to change that and take away those multipliers and take away that ability for you to retire at the retirement level that we promised you. It's not just dicta that the lawyers are saying, it really is true that if somebody says, I'm going to devote my primary working years to being a peace officer or to being a firefighter, that means I'm foregoing opportunities to be a lawyer or an accountant or something else based on this assumption that, okay, maybe I'm not going to make as much as I would in the private sector, but I'm going to get this deferred compensation in the form of this pension benefit that is superior to most private sector retirements, and that's going to even out and make this work and make this a good decision to me. And what the governor is saying he wants to do is to be able to say, you can rely on that promise all the way to the end, and then I can pull the rug out from underneath you and take it away. And his lawyer said it right there in court multiple times that nothing essentially is vested beyond what you've worked till today. if If the court ratifies that position, I think it will unsettle 50 plus years of case law. And, and it really will create a chaos of people's expectations and what they're going to do. You might even see a mass exodus in public safety, particularly with peace officers are under a lot of scrutiny these days. And if you, if you pull the compensation piece as well, it would be very unsettling. And I would also just point out to you that if you look at the Marin case And you look at the Alameda case and the standard that the first district had proposed in each of those, compared to what the governor and his lawyers argued yesterday, you know, what the state was advocating was very, very radical. It went far beyond what the appellate court cases had done in Marin the court jumped on the should language and they basically said that the supreme court didn't know what it meant when it said must and we're going to correct it for we're going to correct you for yourself and tell you that you really meant should when you said must and since the word is should then we can modify benefits for cost savings and and pure cuts and it allows this sort of one-way street which you know leads to the inevitable Argument that was raised by the state that they can cut whatever they want. Alameda came out after Marin and sort of took another bite at the apple at it and they said, well, the Marin court got it a little bit wrong here. We still think that there's nothing controversial about cutting the benefits and we agree with the proposition that the court didn't know what it was saying when it said must and it really meant should. But the thing that they did wrong is they looked at the overall pension systems throughout the state, which are a bunch of different systems, and that you should look at each local system, which is, I guess, closer to the mark. But again, for the reasons I previously stated, you're looking at the funding level of these pension systems that really just set contribution rates, invest money, and in pay checks when it's really the employer that should be being looked at if you're going to look at something um, to see what is their financial ability. pay their pension obligations, you know, and and just in closing, why the contracts clause is so important and why the California rule is so important and what sets our country apart from other nations is that we have the constitution and we have the rule of law and you have property rights and the government can't just come in and say, I'm going to pass a law because and, and impair a contract because it's politically advantageous. If you didn't have this rule, I think folks need to think about other contexts where it could be applied. And so you think of mortgages. I could envision, if you eviscerate the contracts clause and these types of protections, situations where politicians would run on, hey, elect me and I'll pass a law that impairs the bank's mortgages on your house. We'll pass a law that freezes the interest rates or eliminates the interest rates or will eliminate 50% of of what you owe on it. And the contracts clause says you can't do that. You can't do that to a bank. You can't do that to Wall Street, just like you can't do that to a public employee that gave 30 years of their service in the expectation of a promised pension benefit.
0: Uh, we'll, We'll certainly see how the court feels about it here in the next couple of months, but we can leave it there for now. Um, David Mastagni from Mastagni and Holstead, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Brian.
0: Dan Kolke is a partner with Gibson Dunn in San Francisco, chair of their state appellate practice and formerly and so she Justice in the California Courts of Appeal, he, like the state party, the Namichi here, argues the state's dire financial straits strenuously recommend that the legislature be granted some latitude in amending public pensions. Moreover, he says the state's jurisprudence, including the California rule, has drifted fairly distant from a more simple, straightforward approach generally applied under the analogous federal contracts clause. He joins us now. Mr. Colkey, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: So uh, you filed an amicus brief in this case, on behalf of the Pacific Research Institute, supporting the state's position here. A big piece of it, sort of a theme running throughout it, is the dire straits in which you say the state's public pension system is in. Sort of looking forward, you say the state could easily become pretty insolvent in terms of the obligations it owes to public employees. And so that's a pressing practical matter, uh, sort of overarching this case. Tell me just how bad things are in your view.
2: All right. So Let me discuss two points. One is the extent of the unfunded liability, and secondly, what would have to be done uh, if we don't address this unfunded liability. So first, let me take the unfunded liability. Pacific Research Institute has estimated that if one takes into account the risk that the rate of expected return on these pension funds uh, is lower than anticipated, that the state's unfunded pension liabilities are as high as between 300 and 600 billion dollars as of 2014, and PRI's estimate uh, is fairly well in correspondence with something that the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research did in a 2010 study. It estimated that the risk-adjusted unfunded liability for CalPERS and then the related public employee pension fund for teachers CalSTRS was nearly 400 billion. So that 400 billion is pretty much uh, in between PRI's estimate of 300 to 600 billion. Moreover, the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research also estimated that as of fiscal year 2013 that the risk-adjusted pension debt of California uh, for both state and county pension systems, had grown to virtually a trillion dollars, $992.4 billion, and that also matches Pacific Research Institute's estimate. Given this huge unfunded liability, PRI estimates that if one was to cover these unfunded pension liabilities through tax revenues rather than through reform, it would require the largest tax increase in California's history, basically about... $28.3 billion per year for 30 years, and that would cause California's economy to shrink 21% over the next 30 years. The alternative, if you did spending cuts, the spending cuts would be, at both the state and local level, more than 8% across the board, which would eliminate a lot of services, including fire, police, garbage collection. Uh, It would be a huge spending cut.
0: So those certainly are some big numbers. Let me let me ask you, related to this particular case and the issue here, the practice of public employees buying service time to then eventually augment their pension, that was designed when it was passed in 2003 to be a cost neutral measure for the state. The cost put forward by the employee would equal the eventual uh, return that they received. So I suppose how does the the dire straits of the state FISC even really factor in here if this theoretically at least is supposed to be a cost-neutral measure?
2: All right. Well, that's a good question. And there's really a two-point answer to that. Number one, notwithstanding the legislative intent that these airtime credits were to be fully paid for by the employee, in fact, in practice, it's turned out that they are being purchased at below their actual cost cost partly because it's difficult to estimate what the cost will actually be in terms of the retirement benefits for the employee so number one they are a cost losing proposition and the other point is that i don't think you can isolate this one item which is a cost losing item from the other reforms that governor brown instituted in his twenty thirteen reform it was simply part of a package of reforms. So one has to look at all of the reforms as making a significant albeit not sufficient step forward to addressing the unfunded liabilities. I mean I think the bottom line is that the problem of these unfunded liabilities is way too big for any single reform to be a sufficient fix. So you'd always be able to find that any single reform, you know, isn't going to do very much. So you've got to do a number of reforms to try and get some uh, headway towards uh, resolving the problem.
0: Yeah, there's um, one reform being just one of a, a, a number that have been sued over in the, in the wake of some of the, the reform measures taken on in, in twenty twelve. So next question would be twenty thirteen. I'm sorry, twenty thirteen. In in reading the, the briefs and, and the filings here, it does seem like that practical reality that you cite the the financial the you know the finite financial resources at the, available to the state you know, factors in more prominently, say, than in the typical case, you always have policy and practical realities that folks will present to the court as, you know, things to consider in addition to the legal arguments. But it almost seems like here that argument takes precedence to sort of the, the legal claims. Do you, do you have that sense at all as well?
2: Well, it it certainly is the elephant in the room. But I would say this in terms of the policy concern over unfunded uh, pension liabilities and that is at least in this field whether or not reforming uh, pensions is an impairment of the employees contract right Uh, these policy concerns are actually in fact also a legal basis for permitting impairment of the contract right because under the jurisprudence for impairment of contracts if the impairment is substantial But it is also reasonable and necessary to achieve a significant legitimate state objective that impairment can be permitted. So in in this case, the policy is also can be the basis for a legal ground for justifying the impairment.
0: Okay, let's go ahead and and sort of fully unpack the, the legal arguments that you present in your amicus brief. One of them being that the... The, the California contracts clause, as compared to the federal contracts clause, um, the jurisprudence surrounding them has tended to be a, a bit different. In the last generation or two, California courts have created some some case law around our own constitution's contracts clause that's different from the, that based on the federal clause, and that's caused some confusion. Tell me a bit about that.
2: All right. So, although the U.S. and California constitutions have the virtually the same language prohibiting states from passing laws that impair the right to contract, and despite the fact that the California Supreme Court and various California courts of appeal have said that the provisions are basically parallel, the California cases have diverged from the federal jurisprudence on impairment of contracts. I actually find about four. One is the so-called California rule. Which provides that upon commencing employment, and we're talking about, of course, public employees here, upon commencing public employment, uh, a public employee acquires a vested right to earn additional pension benefits in an amount comparable to those available when the employee was first employed. In short, the legislature can't change the benefits in the future for future service under the California rule, whereas federal jurisprudence does allow these changes for future service as long as you make the change before the future service under the uh, federal clause Two, you have to remember that in the pension area for public employees the contract arises not from necessarily a direct written contract between employer and employee but arises from legislation the legislation implies a contract right And the California cases and the federal cases, you know, have often indicated that there's got to be clear and unambiguous intent that the legislature intended to create this vested contract right before so holding, because the general rule is that a previous legislature should not be able to bind a future legislature. But the California cases have often simply presumed the existence of a contract right arising from the statute without first making the requisite finding that there is a clear and unambiguous legislative intent to create a contract right so that's another divergence third the california cases often don't focus on whether the legislative change actually is a substantial impairment of the contractual obligation they don't really fully define uh, what substantial impairment is and then finally the California cases have added a an additional element to substantial p- impairment, and they have found that the to be constitutional the substantial impairment not only has to be necessary for a significant legitimate state purpose but there also should be a comparable new advantage provided by the legislation and when we looked into the case law on this, this first arose in a California Supreme Court case Allen versus City of Long Beach and when you look at the case it cites there's really nothing in that case that specifically provides this additional new element so this Allen case started this element uh and then there was another Allen case by the California Supreme Court that changed the should have a comparable new benefit or advantage to must have a comparable new advantage and there was nothing from its prior case that suggested the should should become must. So all of this is what I used to call when I was a judge, uh, well-settled error. There's a original error in a case that's not based on really any specific case law, and that it is carried over and sometimes even changed a bit by subsequent cases. And so you have a group of cases that provide for a standard that was established on
0: nothing. I mean, in in theory, of course, there's nothing wrong with a state interpreting its own constitutional provisions differently than those from the the federal constitution. But in in your view, this departure from the traditional, uh, from the approach, say, federal courts have used in interpreting the the contracts clause is, it's it's not a problem that it's different, it's just that it's misguided.
2: That's right. And, And some of it just doesn't make sense. I mean it doesn't make sense this requirement or recommendation depending on whether the word should or must be used this recommendation that there be a comparable new advantage for any substantial impairment doesn't seem logical to me because if the advantage is comparable to the impairment how's the impairment substantial would seem if it's comparable if there's a comparable advantage to the substantial impairment that creates a disadvantage it would seem to neutralize the impairment
0: aside from that should or uh, must be provided offsetting benefit what what i suppose are the main problems with the california courts approach here is it it seems like one of the the, the biggest ones which you did mention is that implying that there Is a contractual right based on statute, even if the language isn't terribly specific or clear, can tend to bind future legislatures that might seek to effect some policy change?
2: Correct. Yeah. That is one of them, is the cases just seem to jump from the legislation to there being a contract right without analyzing whether this legislation unambiguously and clearly expresses an intent to create this vested contract right.
0: There was a point made in oral argument by the um, appellant's attorney that it's pretty rare that statutes will say, hey, we're clearly making a vested right here. I suppose what might that look like Were the legislature expressing some clear intent they wanted to create that right?
2: Well, of course, nothing prevents the legislature from actually stating that expressly. So that would solve the problem. And you know, many times the legislature will expressly state something that it intends, particularly in uncodified sections of the statute. I mean, you will find in the uncodified section saying it is the intent of the legislature to do X, Y, Z. So that would be a very easy way for the legislature to express the intent if it wanted to be clear and unmistakable about it. The other way, of course, would be to look at the context of the law and what it provides and provide some sense as to whether or not what the legislature was providing in that case was simply the vested right to a reasonable pension, or whether it was making a vested right to the specific benefit that was provided in the statute. And it's interesting, when you look at the older cases, they talk about the flexibility and the fact that uh, the pension benefit does not have to remain exactly the same as it was at the time that the uh, legislature enacted the statute, as long as it still provides a reasonable benefit. So the the older cases seem to understand this, that the legislation doesn't necessarily have to express the intent of that specific benefit, but may be clearly expressing an intent to provide a reasonable pension benefit.
0: Okay, and then let's go ahead and and walk through uh, the... The arguments that you lay out in your brief, there's a handful of alternative ones. The first one that we sort of already hashed out is that you argue that the right on the availability of the right to purchase airtime created by that 2003 statute was not intended to be a vested contractual right that then were taken away. It could be the basis for a contracts clause suit, right?
2: Right, and, and the point there is that the airtime legislation – Was simply a statutory offer for an employee to buy airtime credits. So it didn't give them the airtime credits. It was simply an offer by which the employee could buy the airtime credits. It's hard to say how an offer to buy airtime credits that has not yet been accepted was intended to be a vested contract right. I mean, normally you need an offer and an acceptance to have a contract. So how is an offer itself a vested contract right?
0: Even stipulating that there was a contract right created, you next argue that not a substantial impairment of that right here. Of course, you said that's not necessarily a step that the California courts always go through, right?
2: Right. They don't always discuss what substantial impairment is. But I think in this case, this would be a good opportunity for the court to do that because the nature of these airtime credits uh, negates the repeal of the offer being a substantial impairment. One – the airtime credits were to be without cost to the state. So how can something that was not meant to be of any cost to the state be a substantial impairment of a pension right? So, you know, that would be one basis to say there's no substantial impairment. And the other is that these airtime credits are not earned uh, based on the employee's performance of service. They are simply additional years of service that can be purchased And that would seem that if you repeal that, how is that a substantial impairment of a pension right, which almost by definition is something that you earn through your service with the state? So it seemed to me this is another easy way of deciding the case and also providing a little guidance in terms of looking at what the nature of the impairment is and determining whether that particular impairment could be deemed substantial.
0: But then, again, stipulate that that point is seated. This is considered a substantial impairment of a contractual right. You say, nonetheless, if you apply sort of traditional contract, contracts clause principles, such a impairment can be done if it's done in a reasonable manner and is, is necessary. Again, that's one step you say is not always applied by the courts. But why uh, – is this where the, the dire state of fiscal affairs comes in?
2: Yes. That would be, in other words uh, – if you, if you go to federal contract impairment law, the substantial impairment can be justified if it is to achieve a legitimate and substantial state objective and it is done in a uh, reasonable and necessary way. And here, the repeal of the airtime credits was part of a reform to address the very significant unfunded liability of California's public uh, employee uh, pension plans. So it certainly would be a repeal that was relevant and served a substantial state interest, and it would appear to be you know reasonable and necessary change as part of an overall package. But as you noted from the the very start of our discussion, uh, because the airtime credit is you know only a, a small portion of the unfunded liabilities, you've got to look at the entire package in determining uh, whether it is uh, related to a substantial and legitimate uh, state interest.
0: On that sort of argument, the the need and just the the necessity for the state to take these kinds of measures because of financial situations impending upon them, that seemed to be uh, around those arguments. Certain justices, including Justice Kruger, seemed worried that there were Wasn't any obvious limiting principle that, okay, here perhaps to work towards resolving those sort of financial issues, perhaps it seems reasonable to eliminate this particular credit. But that taken to a a further extreme, that argument would allow the state to say um, diminish prospectively uh, pensions significantly, cut them in half or even more drastically. I suppose what kind of is the limiting principle that that argument would meet?
2: Well, I'd say that there's a couple. One of course is it depends on how dire and immediate the straits are of the public employee pension funds. I mean, if you reach a point where they, you know, simply cannot sustain the pensions, one might say that uh, a reduction in the pensions to allow pensions at least to be paid and for the system not to go bankrupt might be a justified substantial impairment because it would be necessary to achieve a a critical state objective. But the other way you could look at it in terms of saying that there is a constraint against simply eliminating pensions is to go back to the older cases like Kern versus City of Long Beach uh, back in 1947, where it stated that statutory language regarding pensions are subject to an implied qualification that the legislature may make modifications and changes, and that the employee doesn't have a right to any fixed or definite benefit, but only to a substantial and reasonable pension. So if you go back to my kind of first point, which is that before you determine whether or not there's impairment, you have to determine whether or not the legislature intended unambiguously and unmistakably to create a vested contract right, you could say that the legislation on pensions only implied a vested right to a reasonable Pension and not the specific uh, pension that's embodied in the legislation. And if you did that, then the vested right would be simply to a reasonable pension and not to, say, the much larger pension that was embodied in the legislation that may have turned out to be ill conceived. And if we don't do something like that, we're in a situation where every time the legislature feels flush with funds and increases pension benefits uh, you're never able to ratchet it back
0: yeah that that did seem to be a concern as well of some of the justices that you wouldn't want to place the legislature in a straight jacket so any benefit provided wouldn't then be able to be potentially altered in the in the future when uh, circumstances changed I suppose it does of course bring um, you know the, the reasonableness inquiry is always a little bit mushy and probably depends on whose you know, perspective you have. If you're a public employee, you might think a reasonable change to a pension is a little bit different than, say, if you're sitting in the, uh, the state pension office and having to, to balance all the books. But I suppose that's why we have courts to, to hammer out those questions. We can start to wrap up one uh, just last question for you. How do you think the court might approach this question? It's one of a lot of different pension types cases that are working their way up to the high court. How do you think the court will balance all these very weighty and, and important concerns?
2: So this is solely a guess, and I, I note that I didn't attend the oral argument where I might have had a better idea as to where the court was heading. But my expectation is that the court is going to have a narrow ruling. I think that this case is one that offers a number of very legitimate narrow rulings. And of course, a narrow ruling, while you know, disappointing to some litigants or amikai, is you know, always an excellent reflection of judicial restraint, not going further than you have to go in the particular case. So I would suspect that there, it's going to be a narrow ruling. The real issue will be whether or not there's going to be some dictum to put the court in a, uh, a better position at some subsequent more difficult case as to how to approach this issue of impairment of pension rights.
0: Okay, we'll, we'll wait and find out, but we can leave it there for now. Dan Kolke, partner with Gibson Dunn. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
2: My great pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: And it's a show for December 7th, of 2018. Thanks to both of my guests, David Mustagni and Dan Kolke. Thanks also to my production staff here, Nick Perez principally. And also thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget... That you can easily claim one hour of CLE credit for having tuned into the program. It's very simple. Just find a short true/false test on the DailyJournal.com page where this program appears. Complete that, and one hour can be yours. Also, we hope you find us in the various podcast streaming avenues by which we are now available. If you search for us on, for instance, the podcast app at Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal, you should be able to find us. And doing so, finding us, listening there, reviewing, subscribing is tremendously appreciated as it helps other folks find the program. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.